we decided that work was not a place. And if work is not a place, and it's something that you need to be able to conduct from anywhere, then how do we define that? We just imagined all the pieces that would need to be possible to enable work from anywhere. That's Mark Templeton, former president and CEO of Citrix Systems, an early pioneer in virtualization technology. Over 20 years, Mark shaped the strategy, growth, and execution at the company and helped grow Citrix from a young public company with only one product into a global software leader with annual revenues of more than 3 billion and more than 100 million users worldwide. Mark is a visionary. Early on at Citrix, he saw how technology would change the way people work. Long before anyone coined the term the future of work, he championed a vision for a software-defined virtual workplace that could make it possible for people to work from anywhere with an internet connection. Today, Mark speaks widely about entrepreneurship and the future of work. In this episode, he shares insights from more than two decades in the technology sector, including how apps and the cloud have evolved, how to communicate a vision for digital change and execute it, and how the world of remote work will continue to evolve. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode the future of the virtual workspace. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Welcome, Mark. Thank you, Daniel. It's really a joy to be with you here. Always fun to discuss. So you are really known as the person and the seminal visionary behind the concept of the virtual desktop and virtual workspace. And at Citrix, you really helped define a movement of a software-defined workspace. So today I'm thrilled to decode that topic with you. So if we can take our listeners kind of past, present, and future of the concept of the virtual workspace, would love to get your original thoughts on what a virtual workspace would look like, where we are today and where we're going. Yeah, well, okay. So I'm not going to try to answer that in a single answer, but I'd say, you know, the roots of all of this were really consistent with the roots of Citrix. So Citrix really began its life with the idea of remote access. And it was when apps were fat and pipes were thin, everything was dial-up, and working remotely was very difficult. So you only worked remotely when you had to. And those that had to were people who traveled or salespeople who didn't work in the office on a regular basis. So the original technologies and ideas that launched Citrix were really around enabling remote access. And so as time went on, the pipes got fatter. You know, they always had latency issues and they were never quite fat enough, but they got better all the time from dial-up to ISDN to the internet, you know, and so forth. Apps got a little more efficient and thin. That took a long time 
from two-tier client server to three-tier client server to web apps and so forth. But along the way, the whole idea of enabling remote offices, enabling people to work remotely, to be closer to their customers, became more and more important for businesses to grow. So we at Citrix were growing quite rapidly. And I remember in the late 90s, we went public in 1995. We were about 15 million in revenue. And then the next year was 45 million. The next year, 125 million. The next year, 250 million. The next year, 400 million. So we broke through 400, 500 million or so. And really, it was mostly to enable remote access. And we were doing a fair amount of business also delivering Windows desktops to non-Windows devices. And back in those days, you know, you had thin clients, you had Unix workstations that were still very popular, Macintosh, of course. And we at Citrix had a challenge, you know, it's like, okay, we're the kings of remote access. What do we do for an act two? So that's when a lot of work went into reaching into our imaginations, talking to customers, talking to our partners, getting lots and lots of points of view that then led us to imagine making the workplace completely virtual. So when we asked ourselves that question, it led us to a lot of other adjacent sorts of capabilities and remote access you know, being one of them, but remote access to not only to applications, but to documents, to people, simultaneous access, so collaboration. It led to all of those ideas. It led to deep thinking about security issues when, you know, you had collaboration across companies and across business units and so forth. And all of that then led us to make a video <laughs> because we couldn't describe it in any other way. We made a video called The Virtual Workplace, and we launched it in November of 2001 at our customer conference that we, in those days, called iForum. And it really was our best sort of shot at imagining what a fully virtual workplace would be, okay, and what its value would be. And I think that's the key thing, Daniel, that we were focused on, and that is, all right, what kind of problems does this solve for customers and therefore would cause them to want to buy it and buy into our vision? The vision of remote access and then the idea of the virtual workspace was very novel at the time. And you've used words like imagination and deep thinking to really come up with something that was a meaningful transformation. Speak to your philosophy on the importance of imagination and deep work to truly innovate for transformational endeavors. <laughs> it's a great question. So first of all, I think imagination roots itself in each person's child. Some of us that are better at being comfortable with our child within us and some of us are less comfortable with it. And I think that a childlike mind also relates to being a student and being 
curious and being interested in the unknown. And that's something that, I don't know, it's just in my DNA, I suppose, that I studied product design when I went to university. And it was all about the creative process and, you know, finding those ideas within your child's self. And if you think about it, you know, children, they don't know what they don't know. And they imagine the impossible, you know, and because they don't know it's impossible. So I think that's where these ideas root themselves. And a lot of people in tech are gifted with this capability and why we have so much invention and so much trial and error, because I think that's another characteristic of being comfortable with your child that, gee, if I'm wrong, I mean, how bad is that? You know, I mean, that's not the worst thing in the world. So if I'm wrong, I'll have learned something. What's Edison's quote that was so fantastic? It took him 65,000 tries to figure out what one way would work or something like that. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, that's a very child-centered kind of thinking and where I think imagination roots itself. It also roots itself in what I call the analog brain, which is right here, your heart. Okay. You know, it's the adult part of your persona is more digital. It's more about what do I need? It's calculating, it's rational. And the analog part of your brain, the limbic part of your brain is much more about what you want, what you desire, you know, and much more of what you'd hear from a child. And being comfortable with both of those things and mediating them, I think is where the source of imagination is and where invention and disruptive invention comes from. I know you're a fan of Dr. Seuss, as am I. <laughs> Are there other inspirations you have to tap into your child self? Man, I've never been asked that question before. Honestly, it's probably the number one inspiration in that sense has been my children. My children have always been an inspiration for me, and they've always loved all the gadgets that I would bring home and the interesting thing about it is, you know, I'd bring something home and I'd explain to them how it worked and they had no interest in how it worked. They only wanted to know what it could do. And that's the difference between like a child's mind. It's like, what can it do? What can it do? How can it make me better? You know, is it fun? Does it have potential energy, et cetera, versus how it actually worked? So I'd say, you know, my children were definitely an inspiration. Another big inspiration in that regard in my life was my mom, who is an artist. And she always believed that the most powerful thing you could ever be was yourself. And so the worst thing you could ever say to my mom was I wanted to do something because someone else was doing it. She never wanted me or any of my brothers and sisters to be followers. You know, it's like, no, I want to know what you want. I want to know what's on your mind. And she was very much an artist and very much in her child. And even at 89 years old, she's still that way, I'd say. <laughs> That's fantastic. 
On Decoding Digital, we really speak to digital transformation stories and those who bring new products to market. And the invention or the vision of this virtual workspace really laid the groundwork for most of the disruptive innovation that exists today, whether it's in the software as a service world, the platform as a service world. So maybe taking this example of imagination and childlike thinking Take us to the moment where you kind of came up with a concept of saying, we're going to go from remote access to creating a virtual desktop or workspace. Honestly, I wish I could tell you that it was a childlike imagination sort of process, because the fact of the matter is when we looked forward and, you know, as a public company serving a lot of customers, we had a lot of business partners, a lot of employees, and, you know, out of great respect for all of them. Our role is to look into the future and have a future, you know, and chart a future. That was kind of one of our core jobs for our customers and partners. So, you know, we felt like, gee, we're not doing our job if we don't come up with an act two. So this was really out of necessity, to be honest. And we knew we had to challenge ourselves to create headroom and a future for the company. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, we talked to a lot of people, but in the end, it got down to being a very small group getting together on a whiteboard and writing down what our ideas and beliefs were. One of those was a saying that's been repeated often now for a lot of years that we decided that work was not a place. And if work is not a place and it's something that you, need to be able to conduct from anywhere, then how do we define that? You know, and then we drew Venn diagrams and put different types of software, whether it was collaboration software or security or management or networking, video, different types of technologies like voice to text, text to voice. We just imagined all the pieces that would need to be possible to enable work from anywhere. And we were doing all of that because we knew we had to do some new things in order to continue to grow and add value for our customers. So that was really the source of it. And obviously, it did require imagination as well. And so, interestingly enough, a couple of us on the Citrix executive team had been Apple dealers in part of our prior career. So I had been an Apple dealer. I had a dealership in Williamsburg, Virginia. And Dave Jones, who was also on the team, had an Apple dealer in Cape Town, South Africa. And I looked over to Dave and I said, hey, Dave, do you remember Apple's Knowledge Navigator video? And he goes, yeah, man, wasn't that great? I said, yeah, you know, we need to create our version of the knowledge navigator and take all these ideas and package them that way so we could share them. And so that's what led to the video. That's what led to the idea that work is not a place. And that is what led to the whole notion of a virtual workplace and all the enablers of that, which turn out to be software, mostly all software, obviously supported by the right kind of hardware. And then, you know, we kind of felt that 
customers were very locked in to various applications, networks, devices, etc. And so when we made the video, it expressed our point of view that customers shouldn't be locked into any particular device or network or place to work, etc. So device independence was an important idea on the whiteboard, as well as new kinds of devices like now we have in the video, there's a device that's a lot like a Microsoft Surface Duo like this, except instead of having screens just on the inside, it had one more screen on the outside that gave you contextual kind of information that would then lead you inside the device. So yeah, there was a lot of imagination, but we really had to let it loose so that we could find white space to grow into. How has your definition of virtual workplace evolved over the years? (laughs) The way it's evolved is, I would say, from being very much an outcome and capability-based thing driven by technology to understanding that there are tremendous cultural and human kinds of issues to a workplace that's fully virtual. And by the way, I don't pretend to really understand it at this point. I think we're all in the midst of a giant beta test, okay, of that. And there'll be plenty of research, both by professionals and by companies trying to figure out, do we want people to go back to the office? Do we not want people to go back to the office? Do we want them back part of the time? You know, and if so, why? So I guess my understanding or my thinking on it is evolving along with the pandemic with an understanding that there are a tremendous number of cultural, human, and even mental wellness sorts of aspects to the workplace and the notion of making it virtual. So we talk a lot about technology, but technology is only as good as the people that adopt it. And you seem to me as a very human leader. So as a pioneer behind the virtual workspace and the concept of remote access, how important do you think in-person collaboration is or human-to-human contact? Well, it's extremely important. The question is, does it lead to breakthroughs that you wouldn't otherwise get? Because taking human interaction away from even a work environment leaves a lot of question about how you build a culture, how you share common values, et cetera. And by the way, I think these are all areas for invention and innovation that we're going to see explode over the next few years. We see what has been done with video platforms of all types. You know, obviously Zoom has gotten an amazing response from the world at large. So I think there'll be lots of invention that'll fill in some of these gaps. But in the end, that human-to-human contact and presence, I think, is essential to long-lasting, deeper types of relationships. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that virtual kinds of organizations and experiences prevent invention and innovation. But I think from a mental wellness perspective, 
it's important. That may be a little evidence of that. If you look at sort of history, there are people who work in remote offices either by themselves or in a very small group, and they hate it. They learn to hate it. And it's because they themselves have a craving for more interaction, all right? And then there are those who absolutely love it and, you know, wouldn't work in an office environment if they had to. So I think those are facts about people. And that says something to me. It says that some people are cut out either because of their personalities, what they do in terms of their skill sets, et cetera, where they like the solitude and what they get from the solitude. And then there are other people who, and I'll put myself in that category, I'm energized by others, all right? I need others to provide energy to me. And when I'm with others, you know, that's where I'm most creative and most imaginative and I'm enjoying myself most. So we've looked at a lot of productivity data of all remote work versus all in-person collaboration. But then we've also done a lot of surveying of our teams and our merchants to see if they would rather work in-person or remote. Yeah. And what we found is that people overwhelmingly want to have the flexibility to work in a hybrid environment where they can choose what they want when they want. Yeah. However, we've seen that productivity data and cultures show that it's more effective if people are either all together or all remote so there could be an even playing field for people to collaborate. Do you have a perspective on how that evolves? Yeah, I do. My perspective is most people want the world to be sort of binary. It's a zero or a one, okay? And the fact of the matter, most of the world is in between, okay? It's not black or white, it's gray. I think people generally want binary kind of answers to this kind of question. It's a black or white, a zero or one. And I think that the answer here happens to be gray because I think this depends upon the kind of business you're talking about, the kind of work that people are doing, the generational sort of aspects of the workforce. You know, I'm a baby boomer. My children are millennials. Then you have, you know, kind of the X and the Y gen and so forth. So I think it's a complicated question to have a singular kind of answer. What's likely is that younger generations are much more comfortable because they were born digital and much more comfortable with a digital kind of experience and in some ways prefer it and are very, very productive in it. I think the opposite is true for older guys like me, all right? I learned digital. You know, I wasn't born digital. I was part of the digital revolution, which has been an amazing personal journey. So I don't think there's an answer to that question that can be expressed in a definitive way. So I think this is where each company is going to have to examine, you know, the workforce itself, the culture of the company, the kind of work that people are doing, and then how they want to reinforce their culture and make sure that they put a set of policies together that make all of that work for them as a business. Because peak productivity, I'm not sure that's the goal, all right? You can't run a car at its peak power output for a long time. You can for some period of time, 
So I think peak productivity is often enabled by time where there's solitude and time when there's to reflect and time to learn from others and listen and, you know, some of those other kinds of activities that are harder to do in an office environment where people feel like they're under a microscope. At AppDirect, our mission is to make technology universally accessible so anyone can thrive in the digital economy. Yeah. And the concept of universal technology came from actually universal healthcare in Canada, where I'm from, or other countries, yeah. where everyone has the right to have this access. Yeah. In the consumer world, we've made a lot of progress where probably a few billion people now are connected, have access. However, in the business world, I actually think we're far from democratizing technology. Yeah. I think that there's huge inequalities between the companies that can afford masses of IT and not. And software as a service was a great start to offer a subscription-based model where more businesses can access these tools at a lower cost. But I still think we're just at the beginning of the journey. Can you comment on how long you think it will take for these technologies to be democratized so an individual can have access to tools to make them thrive? Yeah, you know, when you were talking about the AppDirect sort of mission and point of view, I couldn't help but think of, you know, at Citrix, we invented a protocol called ICA, okay? And originally it stood for, you know what, I can't remember because as CEO, I changed the meaning of it to independent computing architecture, all right? But when we talked about our mission as a company, we said it also stood for information citizenship for all. And it was because the receiver could run on the crappiest little screen that you could find anywhere in the world. And we felt that that architecture, that approach would be the method to democratize computing. And, you know, I mean, frankly, you know, someone who's listening to this will say, yeah, it's like going back to the mainframe. Because right now, if you take the aggregate total of several hundred nodes of the hyperscale clouds with the network that connects them together, we have something called the worldwide computer. And all you need is like a Chromebook or something that runs a browser. And you can access pretty much most of the world's knowledge. Well, in fact, you can access most of the world's applications, if not all of the world's applications. So we have the means at this point. And the question is now, how does that play out? And I think that Obviously, it's got a lot to do with economics. There are a number of initiatives that have been tried over the years to change the economics of a client-side device. We at Citrix participated in many of those initiatives because of our belief in information citizenship for all. And I think probably the answer is that people in the world that can't yet afford it those economies have to actually improve enough to where the devices will be within the reach of people to then democratize 
computing. And P.S., I think if we zoom out, my point of view is that today a lot of people will use the term third world versus first world or Western versus developing. And actually, in most cases, what you're referring to as the Western world is under 500 years old, okay, in the sense of being the dominant GDP in the world. And what we're referring to as the developing world were historically the world's largest economies. And so they're actually trying to reemerge because the so-called Western world, we've been living so far above average for so long, we're being pulled down to the mean while the world that is reemerging, they're being pulled up to the mean. You know, think of the economies around the world where people still feel blessed to have a form of transportation, to have a roof over their head, to educate their children, to eat three meals a day or even two meals a day, you know? I mean, we have such an underappreciation for that in the U.S. and in most so-called Western economies. And I think that's part of the struggle. And I think part of the struggle that's going on is we're tending more toward the mean and going in fits and starts and other economies are ascending and enabling citizens to have some of the fundamental things that humans need. You know, if you were sitting on Mars with a telescope, that's probably what you'd be observing along with other things. It's a fascinating observation. And I think what's emerging today, to your point, is really this digital divide where you have a digital world versus an analog world. Those that have access to the tools, the information, to the capital in order to leverage technology to increase GDP and to be able to make for themselves. So I think in order to create more equity, there probably needs to be more effort to providing that access. Yeah, I think, but I'm a huge believer in Darwin, (laughs) you know, just in the sense that humans have a capacity to achieve (laughs) and they're so resilient, you know, in spite of crazy obstacles. So, you know, I had fun for a little over a year running a cloud company called Digital Ocean. And we had 12 data centers around the world. Two-thirds of our business was outside the U.S., Daniel, okay? And if you looked at the data we had about our developers and our customers, over 60% of them were self-taught. They taught themselves to code. And they were in India and Brazil and China and throughout Asia and Eastern Europe. And they would tell us the stories about their lives because we wanted to know, like we wanted to know them. And, you know, they would talk about going to school and going home. And mom and dad, they wanted to know, like, what did they study in science and in math and technology that day? It was a hugely important topic. And whatever assets they had, probably not the kind of laptop that you and I are sitting in front of, they were focused on a STEM-type education as a high priority. And they are the next generation of digital entrepreneurs. We forecast that in 2025, there'd be 100 million 
people that could code, whether at most self-taught, okay, and using cloud services to invent digital businesses. And I'll add my sort of more editorial comment. These are uh, countries that either missed the Industrial Revolution or were victims of the Industrial Revolution. So my editorial is somebody there is thinking, okay, we missed that. We were a victim of the Industrial Revolution. We're not going to miss the Digital Revolution. Fascinating perspective. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited that we've covered a range of topics. Just as a closing bit of wisdom, what piece of advice would you have for listeners today who are looking to transform themselves and their businesses for the benefit of tomorrow? I'd say the one bit of advice would be, (laughs) if you see a problem, I want you to get up from wherever you're sitting and run to the bathroom. And the reason I want you to run to the bathroom is because there's a mirror. And I want you to look in that mirror with the utmost of honesty, I'd say brutal honesty, and decide whether you are the problem or you're part of the solution. And the reason I'm giving that advice is I find that a lot of people are unwilling to consider themselves to be the problem and are not good at introspection. And I think introspection and people who are deeply introspective end up not only knowing themselves best, they're able to collaborate and find people that make them better because they know what pieces they're missing and what pieces to add to themselves. It's so powerful. Mark, I want to thank you again. You've been an incredible leader and great mentor to me. And those words of wisdom are so powerful. So thanks again for joining us on the podcast and hope to catch up again soon. Likewise, Daniel, this has been so much fun. And I just want to thank you for having me as your guest. And I look forward to staying in touch. And I love what you're doing at AppDirect. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. There's always this fear within organizations of not hiring IBM, right? Of not going with the blue chip that is already available and existent and kind of betting on a player that may not be around a couple of months or years from now. And I think you need that backing and that halo from the leadership or from the C-level to actually say, you know what, we actually want you to do that because that's kind of what change will look like for us. And that's what's going to make us competitive five years from now. Founding partner of La Familia, Jeanette von Furstenberg. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.